Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loyal, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts, 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. And I'm not here with Katie Goulis today because Katie is absent for actually biblical reasons. She is at home keeping vigil for the snowpocalypse, which is bearing down on our Light of the East studios right now as we speak. But nonetheless, we still are here, indefatigable, without fear, bringing you the light of the east through the storm. Yes, Katie couldn't make it in today because we have a storm of epic proportions bearing down on us right here. In fact, our Chicago area is the epicenter of this storm that is of almost apocalyptic proportions, so we call it the snowpocalypse. So we hope Katie is hunkering down and she's nice and warm and keeping vigil. Keeping vigil for the apocalypse, for the second coming, of course, is what we all should be doing all the time, every day. In fact, that's how the, the Bible ends with the words, Maranatha, in other words, Lord, come. We should always be looking forward towards the coming of the Lord, his second coming. Yes, there'll be judgment, but it's all the more reason to keep vigil in our lives, to make sure their lives will go well, our judgments will go well on judgment day. So actually, keeping vigil for the second coming has been something that Christians have been doing since the very beginning, from the time of St. Paul, from the time that Christ first talked about his second coming and how we ought to keep vigil. So we take a little lesson from Katie, and maybe this snow can be used, you know, the weather can be used as a reminder of that, that, you know, the brevity of life, and the fact that things and life and nature are, in the end, so much bigger than we are. And all we can do is look at them in awe and in vigilance and in preparation. But speaking of being indefatigable, we have received from some of our indefatigable 
and persistent, consistent, faithful listeners like William Radovich. A couple letters. I want to thank you, William, as always, for writing to us. And William writes this to me today. He says, although, Father Tom, we are miles apart, we stand before the one altar of the marriage feast of the Lamb. May the Lord continue to give you the strength of ten men. Peace in Christ. Bill and Bobby Sue Radovich. Thank you very much, William Radovich, one of our great, faithful, indefatigable listeners. And also, our indefatigable listeners who are serving time in jail, repenting, of course, and renewing, and using that as a opportunity for redemption, because that is what the Christ message is all about. One of our indefatigable members and listeners is Anthony from La Mesa, Texas, who is serving some time in jail. And we do send out a message to all those who are in prison and who are listening to us, especially Brothers D and Brother M as well out in California. But Anthony sent us something kind of interesting. He sent me an article from a paper that was actually a 2005 edition of a paper called the Papa Stronsai Telegraph Special, which is actually out of Scotland. This paper has an article in it, which is referring to an article that was written in 1924 by a very Reverend Father Joseph Shrivers. He was the principal founder of the Greek Catholic, or in other words, we say today, Byzantine Catholic, branch of the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer. In other words, the Redemptress. Father Shrivers was the first vice provincial of the Redemptorist vice province of Lviv, Ukraine. And what happened was the Belgium, these were Belgian monks actually, Redemptorists, were invited by the Eastern leader of the time in the Ukrainian Byzantine Catholic Church, his name was Sheptitsky, to actually come and serve his people in Ukraine, but also to serve Ukrainian immigrants in Canada. This was later on towards the early part of the 1900s and late 1800s when what happened was Canada was being colonized at the invitation of the leaders of Canada, of course, the landowners. They asked the Ukrainians to come and they just offered them land. They literally would take them out there in the middle of nowhere, all this vast, vast, flat country. It just kind of goes on forever in Canada. It's amazing. It's amazing land, large, large, large areas, huge, vast regions. And they basically drop them off there and say, well, here it is. This is yours. Colonize it. Develop it. And what these people did was they were poor, but they took the opportunity and they got the little plots of land. They became largely farmers and miners, and they actually lived in grass huts. It was an amazing, amazing story of how the Byzantine Catholic churches, the Eastern Catholics of Ukraine, develop a lot of what we know today as Canada. And one of the things they would do is they would of course, as always, as Eastern Catholic immigrants would do, one of the first things they would do, in addition to building little grass huts to live in because they had nothing else, is they would build a church. So when you go through lots of Canada, many parts of Canada, you see this wide open, vast region, and right in the middle, far off in the distance, popping up on the horizon, you'll see the onion-shaped domes, or the banya, as they call them in Ukraine. You'll see those things rising up in the middle of nowhere in these vast, vast countryside of Canada. And those were built and established by these immigrants years and years ago. Many of them are served by a priest who comes from the bigger cities, like in Yorkton or uh, Saskatoon. And what happens is the priests would go out from there, and they would go to these hinterlands, these outlying churches and parishes in this broad, vast land, and they would serve those poor people there, those poor, humble people that were developing the land and farming. And what happened was the Redemptorist Order was asked, again, like I said, by Sheptitsky, to come into this area and to work with these people. So we have a very large presence of what we call the Byzantine Redemptorist 
Byzantine Catholic Redemptorists in Canada and other parts of the world as well that have served the Canadian Eastern Catholics for many, many years. And so the article that Anthony sent to us is very interesting because it gives a little history of this great priest, this Father Joseph Shrivers, who helped to develop the Byzantine Catholic or Greek Catholic branch of the Congregation of the Most Holy Redeemer, in other words, the Redemptorists, who have done lots and lots of great work for the Byzantine Catholic Ukrainian people. It also brings up an interesting question about monasticism, religious orders, as is in the case of the Eastern Catholic churches, and also Eastern Orthodox churches and Roman Catholic churches. And in fact, Reverend Joseph Shrivers wrote back in 1924, he said that it was a necessary and superhuman task to graft an Eastern branch onto a Western tree to create a Greek Rite province in Latin Rite congregation, to adopt the customs and the rules of the order so scrupulously kept intact until then, to the religious customs and legitimate demands of a new people, nourished exclusively on Oriental liturgy and traditions. So in other words, there was the challenge. Here you have a Latin Rite order of what we call monastics. In Latin Rite, they often call them orders, different religious orders, which is a little bit different than the development in the East. But these Latin Rite orders were sometimes asked or invited to work among Eastern Catholics. And what would happen then, of course, they would spawn their own vocations, and so these orders would grow, and they would take on the kind of like a hyphenated type of title, such as Eastern Catholic or Byzantine Catholic or Greek Catholic Redemptorist, or Byzantine Catholic Franciscans, or Byzantine Catholic Carmelites. In other words, they kind of had a hyphenated title, because what would happen was they would take the more firmly established, more long-established orders, such as Carmelites, Franciscans, Redemptorists, and so on, and they would develop then a, a branch of the Eastern Catholic spirituality to that order, and that order and then would serve the Eastern Catholic churches. This is how it was for probably about, uh, oh, same from the late 1800s, early 1900s. So most of the monasticism that we have in the Eastern Catholic churches today, especially in the Western world, is what I call the hyphenated type. In other words, they were originally Latinite orders that were then adapted to Eastern Rite churches, and so you have a kind of a mixture, as it were. And these orders did profound things. They really helped to establish and to proliferate vocations in the Eastern Catholic churches, especially in the Western world. They established schools. They helped in hospitals and nursing homes and orphanages. And this was true not only for male monastics, but also for female monastics as well. So oftentimes you had these religious orders, as it were, that developed among the Eastern Catholics, especially in the Western world, which then contributed greatly at that time to the church in America, the church especially in the Western world, the Eastern Catholic churches. But now something has changed. There has been a shift in this, and it's something that's interesting to observe. And this is especially since the Second Vatican Council, which has called the Eastern churches back to its original charism, as it were. Now, it's, a, it's original identity to rediscover and restore anything that it had lost and to amplify anything that it has already so that the Eastern Catholic churches could be, become even stronger even more pure in their identity. In other words, the better and better versions of themselves. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing a little departure from the hyphenated monasticism or religious orders in Eastern Catholic churches to one which just carries basically a single name. And this actually is more characteristic and more purely Eastern in its approach. In other words, in the Eastern churches, Eastern Christian churches, especially among the Orthodox churches who have always retained this approach, basically it's just monasticism. You don't necessarily have what we call orders, or you don't identify them. You just practice and live the monastic life. Now, there was, at the same time, a way to live this, and we're going to talk about that and look at that 
when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, but I'm not here with Katie Gullis today because she is observing the snowpocalypse. She's staying at home, hunkering down, keeping vigil for the great apocalyptic snowfall that's hitting our area here at the Light of the East studios. But we remain indefatigable, and we bring the Light of the East to you through the snow and the blizzard and the storm. So thanks for listening and tuning in. As I mentioned, Eastern monasticism has undergone different changes in the Eastern Catholic churches. Originally, it was based upon a kind of a hyphenated image where Latin Rite communities, well-established, developed branches of the Eastern churches. In other words, you had things like Byzantine Carmelites, Byzantine Franciscans, and so on. But in recent decades, there's been a shift at the hands of the call of the Second Vatican Council to the Eastern churches to develop a more pure form of monastic identity in Eastern churches. The previous forms were good. In other words, they served their purposes. They helped get things established. And the Eastern Catholic churches at the time needed the structure and the solidity of the Latin Rite orders in order to help establish monasticism in America. At least this is the historical circumstances. But now the Eastern Catholic churches have in a sense sort of come of age as it were. They're now strong enough and established enough to develop monasticism as it is in a more pure sense in the Eastern churches, much like you find in the Eastern Orthodox churches, where there is not a hyphenated title, but rather just monasticism. A couple of those attempts that are noteworthy are the Christ the Bridegroom Monastery, which has been developed for women, women monastics, in Burton, Ohio, which is actually, proud to say, part of my own eparchy, the eparchy of Parma, where Bishop John Kudrick is the bishop. In fact, he helped to start this monastery. The monastery is in Burton, Ohio, which is a beautiful area of eastern Ohio, out in the Amish country, the rural country. So Christ the Bridegroom Monastery is one of those examples of eastern monasticism for women, which is part of this whole shift to a more pure form of eastern monasticism. In other words, where there is not this sort of hyphen title to it. It's just straight monasticism, where they live the life of Eastern monastics, the liturgical and spiritual life, the asceticism, and so on, the charism, as it were, of Eastern monasticism, an ancient and venerable charism. Another example is Holy Resurrection Monastery, which is out in Valermo, California. And of course, the monks have been guests on this program many, many times, Father Nicholas and Father Maximus and all the, the, those out there in the monastery there, and Father Moses, who's got his little cooking segment on easternchristianmedia.com, which I would advise you to look at. It's very entertaining, very informative. But those monks out there are also examples of Eastern Catholic monasticism, which is trying to be as true as possible to the charism and spirit of Eastern monasticism, which by and large, in a sense, is more simple than in the West. It's a life that is lived according to a certain kind of rule, as it were, and that rule was basically established by St. Basil the Great. Although when we talk about rules in the Eastern Church, Eastern monasticism, we're not talking about rules as 
quite as solidified or compartmentalized or categorized as you have in the West, like the rule of St. Benedict, uh, St. Dominic, St. Francis. In the East, it's basically just a kind of a way of living. And this way of living, if you want to point to somebody who originated it, it would be St. Basil the Great back in the fourth century. Because monasticism started out with just people moving out, away from the cities, out to the desert to just live a life. See, that's the key. That's how it starts out. It's a life that is lived. One person lives it. Another person is fascinated or attracted to that. So they go and join that person and they live it. Another person lives it. And they would live it in a kind of a hermetic way. In other words, they were like hermits in a sense. But then eventually they would come together for common prayer. And then later on with people like Macarius and Euthemius and Basil the Great, we began to develop what was called Cenobitic monasticism. In other words, where they actually came into communities together. They lived in community, not just hermits who came together once in a while, but actually lived in community with a common life. And this is the groundwork that was laid for what would eventually become monasticism in the West under St. Benedict and St. John Cashin and others, where it was more centered around a community with a particular rule that was developed by that founder, such as St. Benedict. So all this came originally from the East and kind of evolved. But the Eastern monasticism for men and women largely is one in which it's a life lived. That's the key. It's just a life that you start to live. And others start to live it with you. And pretty soon there's a commonality. And eventually it develops into what we call monasticism. So monasticism in the East is begun largely by just living the life. In other words, it's not so much where we start out with a official title or structure or name and say, okay, we're establishing now this particular monastery with this particular name and so on. Mostly in the East, monasticism began in a kind of very organic way and still does, in which people just come together to live the liturgical spiritual life, the liturgical calendar of the church under a certain ascetical discipline, a certain charism, a certain sort of simplicity, yet richness, and they just sort of live that, and eventually they become known as a monastery or monastics, as it were. So this is kind of the basic development of Eastern monasticism and how it's gone through different phases, especially in the West in modern times, in which the Eastern Catholics had to rely and drew from the more solid established structures of monasticism in the Western world. And now how we're now returning to sort of where we began. We're returning now to the original form of Eastern monasticism, little by little, in the Eastern Catholic churches. Among the Eastern Orthodox churches, this model never really did change. So they have established and kept this form of Eastern monasticism for, well, since, since the beginning, since monasticism began with Anthony of the Desert way back in the early 3rd century. But the Eastern Catholics had a little different story, a little different destiny, and that destiny is being worked out now by new monasteries such as Christ the Bridegroom for Women in Burton, Ohio, and also the Holy Resurrection Monastery in California. But speaking of the origins of monasticism, we've been hearing on the news lately a lot of the very significant global events in the Middle East, especially in areas such as Africa, in other words, in particular, Egypt, and also areas around there, such as Lebanon and Jordan. And we have to remember that although we see these news events and they're sort of presented basically as global events in terms of power, economy, who's going to rule, what's happening, we have to remember that these are the areas that spawned Christianity, especially Eastern Christianity, both Catholic and Orthodox. 
So as we're watching these events unfold, keep in mind that this is the cradle, the birthplace of Eastern Christianity, Christianity itself, but in particular, the development of Eastern Christianity and Eastern Catholicism. It's also where monasticism developed. Monastics developed really in the deserts of Egypt. You're hearing a lot about Egypt on the news now, but that's really where this monastic phenomenon first developed, in the deserts of Egypt around the Nile. But in particular, you're hearing the the city of Alexandria, which I think is very fascinating. Alexandria probably means very little to most modern people today, but centuries ago, it would have meant everything. See, in the Eastern churches, there were five centers of civilization, which again, eventually became five great centers of the church. One of those was Rome, which eventually became a Western center or the Western center. But the others were Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, Turkey, Antioch, and then Alexandria, and then, of course, Jerusalem, where it all started. So Alexandria is a significant city, even to this day, but more so centuries ago, in Egypt. And Alexandria was one of those great, great luminaries, those luminary spots of early Christianity, especially in the East. In fact, Alexandria produced such people such as St. Clement and Dinamis the Blind and St. Jerome, who lived out there as well. And also the one of the most famous and indefatigable, that's our word today, is St. Cyril of Jerusalem, who was very much involved in the Christological heresies. See, Alexandria produced a great school, a great theological school. It was founded by Pantaneus around 180. And the catechetical school of Alexandria included studies in philosophy, science, and math. And it was led by these influential thinkers like St. Clement. Now, there's a very interesting little magazine that I would recommend you get. It's called One. Yep, O-N-E, One. And it's put out by the Catholic Near East Welfare Foundation. You can find out by going to onemagazinehome.org. That's onemagazinehome.org. And this magazine kind of keeps you up to date and features many aspects of the church in the East, especially the Eastern churches, both Catholic and Orthodox. And there's an excellent article on these countries that you're hearing a lot about in the news today, such as Jordan and the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Jordan is another fascinating place as well, which most people don't know about in terms of its significance biblically. Jordan is the area where they believe John the baptizer baptized Jesus. It is also the place that boasts of Mount Nebo, where Moses stood on the mountain and looked out over the promised land. So these areas are very rich in biblical and early Christian sites. But in particular, we're hearing a lot about Alexandria and other cities in Egypt, and We have to remember, again, that these cities had tremendous significance, biblically and also in the development of Eastern Christianity and some of the personalities that we mentioned today, some of these indefatigable personalities, like Cyril of Alexandria. Now, Cyril was a very fervent opponent of a heresy called Nestorianism. Now, Nestorianism was a heresy that was promoted by Nestorius, who was Patriarch of Constantinople from 428 to 431 AD. Now, this is very significant. You know, heresies are very significant to study because what happens is they get defeated, they get corrected by the true teaching of the church, usually at the hands of councils, but they have a way of kind of being recycled and raising their ugly heads in different forms throughout the centuries. Nestorianism is a heresy that said that there are not only two natures, but also two persons in Christ. As in Nestorius began this by refusing to call Mary the mother of God. He said that, oh no, 
what this title ignores Christ's humanity, and her title ought really to be Mother of Christ. And so a lot of people began to follow him. And this created a great controversy, as you can imagine, and division in the church and even in the empire. See, at that time, there was not the separation of church and state, but rather there was a very, very great closeness of the two, almost an overlapping and intertwining of the two, for better or for worse. Well, along came Cyril of Alexandria and others who opposed this heresy, and and this happened at the Council of Ephesus in the year 431 A.D. And what was interesting about this, from the standpoint of our program here, which works toward unity, is that the Council of Ephesus, Pope Celestine I was called upon to intervene and help to condemn this heresy of Nestorius. And again, this is in the Council of Ephesus, 431 A.D. So here we have a situation where the East called upon the assistance of the West, you know, the Pope, and together they established the true teaching. And that true teaching is summed up, or the word, Theotokos, which means Mother of God. To put it plainly, the person who the Virgin Mary carried in her womb was both God and man. And that's why we can call her most properly, not the Mother of Christ, but the Mother of God. Yes, he was human, but this human also had that other nature. So Christ is one person with two natures. It's a very significant moment in history of the church, and it was established and ironed out once again in the great council of Ephesus in 431 AD with the help and the leadership of the indefatigable Eastern Bishop Cyril of Alexandria. I want to thank you for listening. Hopefully you'll remain indefatigable in your help and support towards unity in the church between East and West, and also in your prayers for all of us here at Light of the East. Thanks again for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the Light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East 14610. Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. CRI, Catholic Radio International.com.